invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Colossians in our New Testament. If you've only grown up in the church, you may not realize what a gift music is. There is no other religion on the planet that sings as much as Christians. And if you have ever had a chance to be in a non-Christian environment setting, worship setting, you would know that. But uh, the closest thing would be Judaism, where they will sing often a cappella uh, psalms. But it's a theistic religion. They believe in a personal God. Uh, Islam does not sing. Hinduism does not sing. And Buddhism does not sing, nor does Shinto. Becky and I have been in all those different kinds of temples. There is no singing. And it is an amazing thing that when you come to the Bible, in biblical religion and Christianity, there is not just singing, there is exuberant singing. Uh, if you're not in the habit of singing, if that's new to you, I would encourage you to get in the habit because there is something tremendous about celebrating and singing that go together. And it is why Christians and churches truly sing more than any other religion. We know what we've been delivered from. Colossians chapter 1 verse 24 through chapter 2, verse 5. As we continue in our series in this letter, this inspired letter of Scripture from the Apostle Paul, one of 13 he wrote in our Bible, we come to what is an autobiographical section. And this is a section where Paul opens up a bit about his life in describing his own life. And in doing so, he gives us an insider glimpse into his own life, his own heart, his emotions, when it comes to the church, about how specifically he served and suffered extensively both for the church. Paul loved the church, and not just the universal church, but he loved local churches. He started a number of them. He wrote letters to a number of them. A number of the letters we have are only because he planted churches that got messed up. So he wrote letters to help intercede. Now, some of his letters really went to churches that were not so struggling, and Colossians seems to be more of one of those, although Colossians was on the brink, as we learned, of suffering. They were allowing false teaching, and the door was knocking on the door. But Paul loved the church, and as he opens up in this section about his own life and experiences and how much he served and suffered for the local church, it raises the obvious question, which is this. You with me? If we claim to be a born-again Christian, if you claim to be a born-again Christian, not just religious, not just a church attender, but someone who truly knows Christ, are you serving Christ's church in a local church or just sitting on the sidelines? I know there's a bit of both here today. There may be a lot of both here today. A few years back, Becky and I went to a funeral. That's not unusual. But this happened to be a funeral of one of our friends, an older friend of ours and his wife. But at the funeral, we ran into uh, another friend of ours, an older kind of mentor, a Christian mentor of ours. He was 82 years old at the time. And uh, I knew he had been active in his local church. My parents were in his church. And so when I saw him, I said, Enoch, are you still involved, you know, in leadership in your church at 82? And he said, oh, yeah. He said, uh, and then he started 
rattling off. So he said, well, I'm on the elder board. I teach the, in the youth group. I'm on a search committee. I'm in two small groups and I lead a men's group. All at 82. That's all in. And that's the kind of impact that a man or a woman of God can have if they stay in the game. That is the biblical picture, by the way, of staying in the game as long as God gives us life and health if we know him. And I loved his answer. Passage we're looking to today, starting in verse 24 of chapter 1, down through chapter 2, verse 5, is a section in which two critical priorities of Paul emerge. Again, this is an autobiographical section, so that's what's important to remember here. Two very important priorities come to the surface about Paul's life. Number one, willing to serve and suffer. This comes out extremely clearly. And secondly, Paul's love for the local church, which comes surging out of these pages. So first of all, let's dive in, willing to serve and to suffer. Paul begins this section with a bit of a strange verse. It's a verse that talks about suffering in the context of serving. And we want to spend a little bit of time on it because it's clear it, re it reflects a priority of Paul, both of serving and suffering. So, uh, verse 24, let me begin there. Paul says, I rejoice in what I am suffering for you. That verse does not make sense to North Americans, period. Rejoicing in suffering. I rejoice in what I am suffering for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regards to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. Paul's saying at least two things that I can gather from this verse. Number one, very clearly, he rejoices in the opportunity to not just to suffer for the sake of suffering, it's a very specific suffering. He's suffering for his labor for them, and that brings a certain amount of hardship. If you know anything about leadership, especially leadership in a Christian organization, a Christian church, you know that it's not easy. Uh, much of what we call leadership is just trying to keep relationships from blowing apart. That's a lot of what leadership is, and that's a lot of what leadership was for Paul. The early church considered it a privilege to suffer for the sake of Christ. When you read early sermons of the church fathers, when you look at some of the early writings of the church fathers, the, the, they write in a very different way than a North American would write today. Unlike modern-day America, where we are paralyzed by the, even the thought of suffering, as Paul worked to start churches and help them stay healthy, it was an exhausting effort for him. And he received a lot of reward as he served in local churches. But he also received a lot of flack. And it was a lot of hard work. And he suffered. And there was great discouragement at times. Again, I rejoice in what I'm suffering for you. And then the second thing he's saying, besides rejoicing and suffering is this quizzical phrase, I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. What does that mean? Well, let me tell you what I don't think it means. Roman Catholicism has always said that that refers to purgatory. It's a place where you go, if you know Christ, or even if you don't, to finish atoning for sin that is not finished yet. That's one of their key text for that verse. And the problem with that, twofold, the New Testament doesn't teach purgatory. The Old Testament doesn't teach purgatory. There's a reference to it in the Apocrypha in Maccabees. This is not a verse about purgatory. That's not what they're saying here. 
And again, the problem with that is the previous, another problem with that is the whole previous section before this is about Christ's atonement and that his death fully paid the price for God's people, for his elect. And so to look at this and say, well, something's missing in the atonement, that is not what Paul's saying here. So if Paul cannot mean, and he doesn't mean, that the cross is somehow deficient or lacking in power, the question is, well, then what does he mean? So again, I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. I think the answer probably, most likely, looking at a number of commentators, is that what is lacking is most likely a visible display of Christ's sufferings for a lost world to see. There's nothing lacking in his suffering. There's nothing lacking in what happened on the cross. But people who've not heard the gospel and have not heard of Jesus, they've never seen it. They've never been exposed to it. And in that sense, it's lacking. And so Paul finishes that picture for those he's ministering to. In other words, Jesus' sufferings are unknown by people who have never heard of the cross, never heard of the gospel, never heard of him. And that's where a true born-again Christian comes in. How? Because as, if you know Christ, as you serve and suffer for Christ, you are a visible illustration of the gospel. If you serve and suffer well, example, Romanian pastor, Joseph Son. Becky and I got the privilege, had the privilege to hear him a number of years ago here in Chicago. Uh, pastor of the largest church in Romania back in the 80s, as he was tortured in prison, brutally tortured, he said these words afterwards. He said, I am an extension of Jesus Christ. As I was beaten in Romania, I was an extension. He suffered in my body. It is not my suffering. I only have the honor of sharing in his suffering. Again, we, we don't even write things like that. We don't think like that. But that's exactly what he's saying is this verse. He was filling up Christ's afflictions for those who were doing the beating. Those of the, of the Communist Party who had put him in prison didn't know anything of the gospel. They were watching his response and seeing Christ. And so in that sense, Pastor Joseph was completing what was lacking in Christ's sufferings for a lost world. Pastor Joseph says, and I've quoted this before, I love his distinction. He says the sufferings of Jesus were propitiation, for propitiation. They were atonement for sin. He said the sufferings for a believing Christian are for propagation, for spreading the gospel. So Christ's suffering is for a propitiation, word used four times in the New Testament in Greek. Our sufferings are for propagation of the gospel. That is how they complete Christ's afflictions. In other words, suffering isn't just a price tag for spreading the gospel and completing the Great Commission. Hear that. Suffering isn't just some kind of byproduct that comes along to help complete the Great Commission. The New Testament teaches suffering is often plan A, God's appointed means of accomplishing the Great Commission. Not just, kind of, not just some kind of a byproduct. It's often plan A for spreading the gospel. And the reality, again, we breathe Western culture here. The view, this view of suffering that Paul even has in this verse, verse, is it's just foreign to us in Western culture, in an affluent culture. We are hurt easily. 
We are offended easily. We are fragile. We are focused on ourselves and our rights, and we give up easily. Several years ago, uh, again, at some, some conference here in Chicago, we had the privilege of hearing Abhijit Fernando speak from Sri Lanka. At the time, he was director of Youth for Christ in Sri Lanka. Love his books, love his writings. He has a book out called The Supremacy of Christ, and he makes this comment, and as he makes this comment in the book, he references this verse, verse 24. This kind of comment stings a little bit, but as an outsider and observer of our culture from Sri Lanka, I think he's, as a mature leader and a good exegete of scripture, he has He's worth listening to. Presently, it seems that Christians, especially in the West, when he says the West, he means Europe, America, Canada, Australia, Western culture. Seems like Christians, especially in the West, are often not willing to endure suffering because of their commitments. When commitment involves suffering, many give up on the relationship. They divorce their spouses, change churches, ignore their small group, leave their organization, drop colleagues who have been wounded in battle between good and evil. How easily we give up. And that is, I believe, what Paul is getting at. In verses 25 to 27, he explains how as a servant of Christ, he took the gospel to the nations. Some of you know the word there, ethne, can be translated nations or Gentiles. Once again, the context of going to the nations is in suffering. That's the whole context of the section. So verses 25 to 27, he has just said how he is filling up Christ's afflictions and he's completing them by suffering. And then he says, I have become his servant by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness. The mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the Lord's people. And that mystery means the inclusion of the Gentile, of the nations, into the people of God along with the Jews. To them, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles or the nations the, the glorious riches of his mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And then in verses 28 and 29, he reveals the goal of his serving and his suffering. What is that? His goal is to help believers, true believers, mature in Christ. That's, what Paul's, that's why he spends all his time doing this. He doesn't want to just start organizations. Paul loved people. He loved the body of Christ, and he wants to nudge and nurture people forward. And that comes out in verses 28 and 29. This comes out of his deep love for the church. He is the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. So that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. That's his goal. That's his goal. That should be every Christian leader's goal. And to this end, I strenuously contend or struggle with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. Bottom line, in Paul's mind, to love the church and the local church. When I say local church, I mean a visible local congregation. To love the church means to serve the church and to serve in the church. The Bible knows nothing of just coming to a worship service and sitting once a week and going home and never being engaged in the life of that congregation. If that is what you are doing, you need to know lovingly that is unbiblical. And it's not going to nurture you forward, and it's certainly not going to impact your children that way. 
The Bible knows of loving the congregation, loving the family of God, and that means getting involved, which is why, same author, Paul, writes at least three different times in three different letters about something called spiritual gifts. Spiritual gifts, very short definition, and an ability given by the Holy Spirit at the time of conversion to a genuine believer to help them operate effectively in the body of Christ. Paul lists in Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, and Ephesians 4, the different gifts. Scholars disagree whether those lists are extensive or exhaustive or representative. We, I, I assume they're probably representative, but there's 20, 25 gifts listed. The point is, every single true born-again believer has at least one, probably a couple of those, and is to be using them in the body of Christ. That's why they're there. That's why God gave them to us. And the purpose is so we can help build up the church and we can help advance its mission and not just sit on the sidelines and drop in once a week for some inspirational goodies and then go home. That's not biblical Christianity. Some of us this morning need to hear that. It needs to prick just a little bit. It needs to poke just a little bit. It needs to cut just a little bit because a good deal of a large church, that's what goes on. People come, they sit, it's a spectator sport, and they go home. And we need you. The church needs you, and you need the church. We're a community, a family. If you know Christ as Savior, this is your church home. And you need the body of Christ. We need you in the body of Christ. Not treating it like spectator sport. That takes us to then the second section, chapter 2, 1 to 5, where Paul's love for the church even comes surging more forth. A couple years ago, Moody Press published a small little booklet by Dr. Paul Nyquist, who at the time was president of Moody Bible Institute, called The Post-Church Christian. Interesting book. Premise was that those born in the 1980s and beyond tend to hold a fairly negative view of the local church. And not uncommon to hear someone in that generation say, oh yeah, yeah, I love Jesus, but I don't need the church. I don't want to do anything with the church. Some people believe they can stay home, don't need to go to church. Again, a very unbiblical perspective and a dangerous perspective. It's the clear opposite of Paul's attitude. As chapter 2 begins, his love for the local body. And Paul knew about local churches. He knew how messed up they can get and infighting and factions and heresy and all kinds. He still loved the body of Christ because that's the visible body of Christ. And he loved it. It's, he knows it's plan A. He knows it's the best hope for the world. He knows that's where true community is found. And he knows that is the only hope where truth will be announced week after week after week in a decaying, dying culture is in that assembled congregation where it will be announced and is available to the public. Chapter 2, verse 1. I want you to know how hard I am contending for you or struggling, comes from the Greek word agnon. We get our English word agony from it. So this is not just kind of a casual, again, not a casual thing. Paul doesn't just kind of walk in, sit down, leave. He is all in. I want you to know I am in agony for you and for those in Laodicea, which was a town city nearby. And for all who have not met me personally, as far as we know, Paul never went to Colossae. My goal is they may be encouraged in heart and united in Love. So now we get to the essence of Paul's concern and love for the church, both Colossae and all churches, verses 2 to 5. My goal is they may be encouraged in heart and united in love. So he's telling us his goal again. It has to do with maturing. 
so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding, that's Christian maturity, in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I tell you this so that no one may deceive you. Here we go back to the danger of this false gospel that was starting to infiltrate this church. I don't want anyone to deceive you with fine-sounding arguments. For though I am absent from you in body, I ain't here. I am present with you in spirit and delight to see how disciplined you are and how firm your faith in Christ is. We know this was a faithful congregation. We know it's not very old. We know they had a good track record so far, and we know a false gospel was starting to seep in. But Paul's concern in verses 2 to 5 can be summarized in one word, unity. Verse 2, knit together in love. And that is the same priority Jesus has for his church. Jesus says in John 13, a new commandment I give to you, to love one another. Love is a verb in the New Testament, by the way. John 17, 21. Listen to this. This is Jesus talking with his father, praying. So you have inter-Trinitarian conversation going on here. I pray that they may be one, his people, just as you and I are one, Jesus and his father, as you are in me, father, and I am in you, and maybe they... And, and maybe that they will see that the world will watch us and believe that you sent me. So Jesus wants the world to see the relationship he has with the Father and that he has with his people and that his people have with each other so that the people will believe that the gospel is true. The late thinker Francis Schaeffer called the unity of the church the final apologetic for a watching world. Meaning... As the world watches Christians and how they behave and how they get along and how they forgive or don't forgive, they're watching the gospel either being validated as true or not true. He has a little book out called The Mark of the Christian, which is just a great little classic. And he makes a comment about both John 13 and about John 17, 21. According to Jesus in John 13, where he says, the new commandment I give to you, love one another. If an individual Christian does not show love towards other Christians, the world has a right to judge that he, in fact, is not a Christian. And then this interesting observation, in John 17, 21, Jesus is stating something else which is even more cutting and more profound. We, listen to this. We cannot expect the world to believe that the Father sent the Son unless Jesus' claims are true and that Christianity is true unless the world sees some reality of the oneness of true Christians. Read it one more time. Based on John 17, 21, that they may see that believers are one as the Father and the Son are one. He says, we cannot expect the world to believe that the Father sent the Son unless the world sees some reality of the oneness of true Christians. So the way I'm behaving towards another Christian, or the way you are behaving towards another Christian in the family of God, not only is an announcement whether Christianity is true, it's an announcement whether you believe that the Father has even sent the Son, and you are broadcasting that to everyone around you. It's interesting. Paul knows 
and teaches that the love for church begins in the home, which is very interesting. Meaning what? Well, in the book of Ephesians, the letter of Ephesians, I'm just going to throw this out. You can look this up. He tells us that the husband and wife relationship is designed to point to Christ in the church. I often use this text, Ephesians 5, 20, 21, 22, in a wedding ceremony. But the design is, is that the husband-wife relationship is designed to point towards the relationship between Christ and his church. Paul makes a very direct link that a husband-wife relationship is a billboard. It's an advertisement. It's a sign that points to something beyond itself. It points to Christ's relationship with the church. It was interesting homiletically, hermeneutically, exegetically, how the church has read Song of Solomon over the centuries. Is not only a literal love poem, but also reflecting something even deeper, Christ's love for his bride. So let me put it this way. How does this work out practically? Let me say it in a little different way that maybe you haven't heard. If a husband wants his children to have a high and exalted view of the church, so dads, if you want your children to have a high view of the local church, then they need to have a high view of their own mother. And similarly, if a wife desires for her children, moms, if you desire for your children to have a high and exalted view of Christ, they need to have a high and exalted view of their father. So let me do one more beyond this, which means that if a father insults a mother to her children, he is insulting the church. And if a wife insults a father to his, her children, she is insulting Jesus. That is how tight the relationship is. How tight it is. Why don't you turn to one other passage with me? Matthew 16. Matthew 16, I want to look just briefly at one other, probably one of the greatest passages about the church and Christ's commitment to it. Matthew 16, verse 13 and following. If there is a chapter beyond Paul's writings that announces the church is a big deal, it's Matthew 16, verses 13 through 20. What's going on? Jesus is on a short-term mission trip, literally with his disciples. They're up in Caesarea Philippi, 30 miles or so north of where they lived in Galilee. This is a very dark pagan area, a lot of demon worship, a lot of pagan occultic activity up in this region. And Jesus took his disciples up there on a short field trip. Why? Well, there's mounting criticism of Jesus, and he's towards the end of his ministry where he's going to be crucified shortly. But let's just say tensions and hostilities are mounting. And so he's spending more and more time alone with his disciples, and he ventures into Gentile territory. And it was important that his disciples are crystal clear about who he is and that he is a Messiah for all peoples, not just the Jews, but for everybody. And that brings us to Matthew 16, verses 13 and following, where he had taken his disciples, again, up north to this very Gentile area, way out of their comfort zone. You ever been on a mission trip and been way out of your comfort zone? These disciples would have been way out of their comfort zone up in Caesarea Philippi. It's right up on the border today of Lebanon and Syria. When you go up there, in fact, as you're driving along the road <coughs> up there, you are driving along the border of Lebanon and Syria. It's a beautiful area up there in the Golan Heights. And this is where Jesus reveals his agenda and his commitment to build the church. And in doing so, he reveals two very big priorities about his church. In Matthew 
16, 13 to 18, he announces he is the one building his church. So he says, it's my church, and I am the one that's building it. When Jesus came to Regia of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? It's a reference to himself, comes out of Ezekiel. And they gave him the answers. We heard this, and some say that. And then you come down to verse 18. He says, I tell you, Peter, on this rock, I will build my, whose church is this? My church, Jesus says. So it's his church. He's the one growing it. And in verse 18, he is the one protecting it. And the gates of hell will not stand against it. Will not stand against it. So Matthew 16, an incredible section where Jesus said the church belongs to him. He is the one growing it. He is the one protecting it. So if you think the church isn't a big deal to Jesus, you haven't read Matthew 16. Jesus gave his life for the church. And it begs the question, what's my attitude towards the church? Because once again in the West, we tend to have a pretty casual view, even a lot of believing Christians, towards local church. Bottom line, ladies and gentlemen of God, young people, kids, bottom line is this. Being committed to and involved in a biblical church is a non-negotiable. If you want to be in community, if you want to hear regular truth announced, if you want to be spiritually healthy and connected, it is non-negotiable that I am involved in a local, healthy, biblical congregation. To love Jesus is to love his church. I'll say it one more time. To love Jesus is to love his church. There is no, you, can't divide, you can't bifurcate the two. And hence the value of becoming a member of a local congregation and being all in and being connected and serving and attending. And hence the importance of honoring perhaps the most disobeyed of the Ten Commandments today, the Sabbath command. And the Sabbath command wasn't just started in the Ten Commandments. It comes up in Genesis. It's a creation ordinance that was reinforced in the Ten Commandments. And then there was Jewish accretions added to it. That's not the point. The point is the Sabbath principle re-announced in the Ten Commandments is all part of being committed to a local congregation and carving out one day in seven as a day holy for the Lord. Doesn't mean I just go to church and the rest of the day is mine. The day is set aside. It resets life. It resets a week. It resets everything about us and why it is so essential that we honor the Sabbath day and keep it holy. It is for worship. It is for rest. Shabbat in Hebrew means stop. It is stop day. And if I am not stopping, if I'm not changing my routine, if I'm just going on and church is one thing and I'm off to the store and I'm off doing this and extracurriculars and sports and all this stuff, and it looks just like every other day of the week, I'm not obeying what God has said and the gift God has given for helping me love his flock and love being reconnected and being reminded What's really important? We all know that stopping and reflecting and worshiping is so critical for keeping perspective in life. What's the summons this morning? Well, if we call ourselves a born-again Christian, and if we love the gospel, if you love the gospel, two questions, and then we'll land the airplane here. Number one, and I'm speaking to those who say they know Christ and love Christ. Do you know what your spiritual gifts are? You need to. 
It's not acceptable to sit in a group and say, well, I'm not really sure. If you say you're a believer, you need to know what they are. Are spiritual gift tests helpful? Eh, maybe. I'm not a big fan of them. I'll tell you what's helpful. Do what you enjoy in the local church and see if you're good at it. And if other people go, my goodness, you're good at that. And you'll enjoy it. And you'll be effective at it. And it comes with a certain degree of ease. There's other things that will not come easily and you, you will be no good at it. Holding babies for me doesn't work the well, apparently. <laughs> Do you know what your spiritual gifts are? Your top two. If you know Christ, you need to know what your top two spiritual gifts are. And second question, where are you serving if this is your local church? Where are you involved? If you know Christ, you need to serve. You need this church. Our church needs you. The kingdom of God, as I like to say every so often, knows nothing of floppers, shoppers, and droppers. Just shopping around, flopping in occasionally, dropping in on occasion. I love the phrase John Calvin. No one can have God as father who will not have the church as his mother. That is how closely Christ views the church. So I close with this. We have a lot of opportunities. Every church has lots of opportunities, but the larger a congregation gets, we have a large congregation, we have lots of opportunities to get involved. We have heavy needs. I'm going to put this one first because I was talking with our children's director this week, Heather Sukup. We have heavy needs right now in children's ministry, especially K to second grade. And so if you have any interest, I would encourage you to get a hold of Heather Sukup or someone in children's ministry. She reports to Pastor Tim. You could talk to Pastor Tim. But we have heavy needs right now in children's ministry K to, to second grade. That involves an application. It involves an interview. We are very careful about all that. There are background checks involved. But assuming that all goes well, we do have heavy needs. And I want to challenge some of you to get involved. We need you right now. Other areas where we could use and are open for, for ministry. Missions, ushering, choir. Awana, greetings, safety team, drummers. We always need more drummers. God-honoring, biblically blood-bought drummers. <laughs> we need good drum. Lots of places to plug in. Lots of places to serve. What are your gifts? Are you using them? Or are you disobeying Christ and just sitting on the sidelines? The benefits are tremendous of getting involved and getting engaged. Don't let this day go by and just go, oh, well, act on what the Holy Spirit's prompting you to do right now. Father, thank you for the local church and this church. Hard to believe this church, Father, almost 130 years old and still going strong for Christ. That is only because of your mercy. Thank you for other biblical churches in our area. We know there are many. And we ask your great blessing on them. We also know there's churches in our area that are not healthy, not biblical, and lead people astray. And we pray you would remove people from them and put them in Bible preaching churches. Protect our flock. Father, help us to be generous givers financially, generous givers in our time. Father, help us to be all in with our Sabbath, with our tithing, with our serving, with our loving. In this body, we want to see Christ and we want to make him known. In Jesus' name, amen.